today's episode of Noon, I'm thrilled to introduce you to my new friend, Chia. She's a flight paramedic who's passionate about EMS and mental health, and her experiences in both have profoundly influenced her personally and professionally. Our team listens as she bravely opens up about her experiences with suicide, mental illness, and PTSD. Chia advocates for the importance of reaching out and not being afraid to seek help when needed. Her insights into these critical topics are both powerful and enlightening. Furthermore, Chio delves into the controversial topic of ketamine clinics and their PTSD therapies, shedding light on the potential risks and benefits of those treatments. Join us for this thought-provoking and engaging discussion as Chio shares her journey, experiences, and insights. Let's get started. All right, Chio, thank you so much for joining us. And I say again on the 911 Nonsense podcast because we had a little bit of a recording issue last time. Yeah, and it actually is going to give me a chance to uh, maybe review a little bit of what I said. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Um, Can you go ahead and give me an introduction of yourself? Um, So my name is Chio Crooks. I've been a paramedic since 2002. Started in EMS in 1989. And I've been a flight paramedic since 2015. Wow. And that's a long time in EMS. I know. I have um, outlived the normal lifespan of a paramedic. (laughs) By several, several years. (laughs) Well, I think you can say decades. That's okay. (laughs) Okay. I don't want to be rude. (laughs) (laughs) So what's, what's kept you going for so long? To me, it's just the passion of the job and medicine. Just, it just grips me. And I like how it's always changing. It's always evolving, right? Like we all, and we as clinicians have to evolve with it. So I think that's been the biggest thing that's kept me going. Not going to lie though, like now that I'm in my third decade, I, I'm looking at maybe something eventually, something a little less clinical would be a nice way of putting it. Right. And a little easier on our bodies and a little easier just in life. <laughs> yeah. Easier on the bodies. That's for sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, it is mentally taxing too. It is very mentally taxing. So you had actually reached out to me a while ago wanting to share your story. Do you still feel comfortable sharing that story? Absolutely. More so than ever, because, you know, I think it's important for people in this industry or any first responder industry when they are struggling in they think that they're alone and isolated, that they're really not. And there are people out there that have been there, maybe not in the exact same situation they're in, but you know, in a similar situation. Yes. And for me, my, my big thing is I've come out on the other side. I'm still in the industry and I'm doing better than ever. So that's what I want to share with people. Okay. Well, let's share it. Well, where do I begin? Uh, wherever you feel most comfortable. Um, so we want to talk really about the the mental health aspect, right? Just the yes. emotional toll. And it's becoming more popular. Like I see it all the time on social media and in the news and to talk about it, which is great. But I still think it's in its infancy for the mental health um, care of first responders. I agree. You know, we're just we're a little bit behind the eight ball, I think. I think it's still a stigma, right, for healthcare providers And it's this, you want to look tough and you want to play tough. Right. And then on top of it, like, let's say you do have that diagnosis of PTSD or whatever your diagnosis is. I mean, it is, I think, a valid concern as to whether or not you're still able to do your job effectively. You know, the clinician, the person themselves may wonder that, but I'm sure there's also some level on the employer part, whether or not they're okay to keep working. Right. So you're saying you want, we should be holding them at a higher standard, right? To maybe be checking in on our employees a little more often. 
Well, I think what I'm trying to say here is like uh, maybe people are afraid to come forward with like I'm struggling because they don't want it to impact their their job. You know, like maybe they're afraid that their employer might take them offline or deem them not fit for duty anymore or whatever the case may be. So I, I think we need to really make sure that we get the message out there that I think most employers anymore are really um, they really want to do what's best as far as mental health for their employees. I would agree. I would agree that there has definitely been an increase in a push for better mental health, especially among medical providers. Um, I do I do still think that we are lacking and that the fear is a valid concern, right, of potentially being told that, well, maybe this job isn't for you anymore. Right. And when you've invested, like me, when I've invested basically my whole life, my whole career, to have to reinvent myself at at this point, life would just be, I mean, I shouldn't say insurmountable, but it would be challenging. So I, I think it's, that's part of the message I want to get out is not only did I have this critical incident that almost cost me my life, but I was able to work through it and continue going. And like I said, I feel that I'm at the pinnacle of my medical career now as a flight medic, which I think you can appreciate, mm-hmm. you know, being a flight medic yourself. So yeah, I, I just don't want anyone to kind of go down that dark path feeling alone scared or maybe even pushed to the point of acting on it like I did right and to touch down the line of you had said reinventing your yourself at this point like and this is kind of where people start going into retirement and what we're seeing is a lot of our providers are going into retirement and then not knowing what to do with themselves and ultimately committing suicide because they feel lost and Maybe there's something that we can do to provide maybe more education or better options for these these retired providers so that they don't feel like they have to go down this path. You know, and especially here in Albuquerque, we've seen several firefighters that have um, not just firefighters, but several providers across the state that they do. They they either get forced into retirement or they go into retirement because they don't know what else to do and then feel like they have nothing else to live for and end up committing suicide. Well, I think for us that are in this industry, you know, we have such a high drive to help people. And then at some point, I'm sure even though it's unhealthy, we're probably used to a certain level of stress, you know, so when that's all taken away from us, it's rather an abrupt lifestyle change, a shock to our own body. So right, which is understandable, because you go from and if you're in like a high call volume area, you go from being busy 24, you know, 24 seven for two days, three days in a row, depending on how much or what your shift is going. And that just is a huge shock because now you feel like you have no purpose. So maybe there's some things that we can do to help provide assistance for people that are in that kind of, uh, in that mode. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's definitely something to think about. And it's given me a couple of ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to your critical incident, do you feel comfortable sharing your story and then how you've progressed post that? I do. Um, so, gosh, I can remember it just like yesterday. It seems like January 6, 2003, I, 2 p.m., I'm working I'm working on a street ambulance, a regular ambulance. I'm a city agency uh, paramedic. And, you know, we get the random, the most common man down, you know, where you roll your eyes. It's like, ah, uh, another man down. And um, so I'm driving to the call, you know, not really thinking anything out of the ordinary, right? It's We've how many how many of these calls have we run? And I get to the parking lot of this business, and you know I just start thinking like, wow, this is 
my, my first red flag happened. Um, there's a, a vehicle in the parking lot where the people are standing around and I look and I'm like, huh, that kind of looks like my dad's car. But in the whole city of Denver, um, you know, what what are the chances? Right. So I'm moving through the call. I remember I put the ambulance in park. I step out and I walk over to the car and it was my dad's car. And he was dead in the parking lot um, with the crowd of people around wow. um, him. So, you know, sometimes if I tell people I ran my own father, I was a cardiac arrest. So that's the, the whole story. This is the whole story. He was, I did run my own father as a cardiac arrest. They said, well, how did you not know you were going to his house? Well, it wasn't at his house. Right. It was at a random business in the city of Denver on a random day. And I was dispatched to it. And I just remember like at that moment, I, I freaked out. I freaked out. I acted like a child. I threw it. I threw a temper tantrum in the parking lot, like stomping my feet, screaming. That's my dad. That's my dad. And, uh, my partner was attending that day. I was driving. Thankfully, Denver Fire corresponds on all our calls with us. Thankfully, they were there. Um, I have a very good working relationship with them, so they they knew me. Um, they could see, you know, the trouble I was in already. So we started working my father uh, in the back of the ambulance. We called for another ambulance to come intercept us because already knew that this probably wasn't a good call for me to be working on or driving. Yeah. So, you know, in the city of Denver, though, we're so busy that the chance of getting another ambulance is slim. It's very slim. So I, I did end up with my partner uh, working on my dad. We we resuscitated him. Um, but, you know, it's one of those resuscitations where, you know, they're never, ever going to walk out of the hospital. And at that point, you know, like when the, the clock is ticking and we've done what we can do, I, I ask my partner, I ask the fireman who's going to be doing CPR if needed in the back of the ambulance are they are they comfortable if i drive to the hospital because we cannot wait for another ambulance at this point you know and they said yes you know but i have to tell you it's the slowest emergent return i've ever done in my whole life because the whole time i was thinking if i crash while driving to the hospital it's just i mean talk about a worse situation getting you know worst um so it was a really slow we got him to the hospital took him in the er and then at that time, I felt once we got into the ER, I was able to take off my paramedic hat, so to speak, and put on my daughter hat, which totally changed the dynamics of the call because I was actually his medical power of attorney and I knew my father had a DNR. So I, I struggled with that on scene because I already knew, I already knew he had a DNR. Yeah, so that's hard. at that time when I, yeah, when I saw him, like, do I say he has a DNR and of course just just have the paperwork, right, with us? But I had to make a decision in that moment, like, I'm here as an employee for the paramedic division, not as his daughter, so I need to act as an employee. And then once we were in the hospital, I felt that I could actually step away from that role and do the stuff that needed to be done for my dad. So, I mean, you know, like, he was in cardiac arrest, we revived him, and then at the hospital, once I was able to get all the paperwork brought to me, we had all life-supporting life support measures uh, taken off and uh so i i mean realistically i held my dad twice that day as he died and it's i'm i don't know how else to say it it messed me up i understandably yeah um it took years for me to come back from it and i never actually recovered enough to come back in a good capacity for the city of denver as a paramedic for them um yeah it it destroyed my career there and 
I think we discussed this a little bit previously, but you know, it was it was kind of slow. It was I shouldn't say it was a slow onset, but the the steps to it were interesting because realistically, we know now, right, that immediately I should have had a critical stress debriefing within uh, X number of days. Didn't happen, you know. Like I should have been offered mental health counseling right away. Um, none of that happened, and it set me on a path that was just. It, like I said, it ended up with my career in the tank and it wasn't good for the employer either. Sure. Um, you know, um, and then I, I mean, this went on for, I, for months, the struggle, um, there were suicide attempts involved in there. Some, uh, one was a very significant one, um, where I was very close to being successful. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was hard on my family. It was hard on my coworkers. It was obviously hard on me. And it took years of therapy and other modalities like mental health treatment modalities to finally get to the place where I am now. Sure. And you had discussed previously also having had a unique experience with um, ketamine, correct? You did some ketamine treatments. Yeah, I um, I did the traditional talk therapy for years after that incident. And I mean, I'd say it got better, but not great. You know, the flashbacks were still there. The nightmares were still there. The All the triggers were still there. And that suicidal thought was always still rolling around in the back of my head. Like, not as strong as it had been, but it was still just kind of in my head. And um, I had an opportunity to do some ketamine work uh, with a doctor that I had worked at Denver Health. Um, he was doing a study for use of ketamine for first responders, and I had asked him if I could be part of the study. And uh, yeah, I did several sessions, and it changed my life. That's really cool. I, that I th- I know that that's a newer thing that they're doing um, across the United States. You know, I can't speak for the world, but I've heard a lot of really good things about ketamine therapy. So that's really cool that you got to use it, and that it had such a positive outcome for you. It did. And then on top of it, not only was I part of a study, like at the time he was opening up his ketamine clinics here in Denver. So I also was working as an employee for him. So it was really gratifying to also help others experience what I had experienced, the relief I had experienced um, with ketamine. It was just good to see it. I, I saw enough positive outcomes to know that it works. I'm not saying it works for everyone, but I, I know it works. It's definitely a tool to be utilized, you know, if something else isn't working um can you walk me through what what you do when you're getting a ketamine treatment um it's it's been a while since i've uh i've worked for his clinic but are you talking about like me as a patient or me as an employee administering the ketamine Um, well we could hit both sides but what like if you wanted to as a provider if you wanted to go and get a ketamine therapy treatment what would you need to do and what is the expectation when you get to the clinic well unfortunately they're still trying to work on whether or not it's um, covered with insurance, like a lot of mental health therapies, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Um, and that's the big that's the big thing is um, back then when my critical incident happened, workman's comp for mental health wasn't a thing. And that was, I kind of went round and round with my employer about that. Like if I had explained to them, like if I had stepped out of the ambulance that day and stepped in a pothole and broke my leg, workman's comp, no problem, you know? You'd send me to another department to work while I heal. All my doctor visits are covered. Like, it's not an issue. But 
I said, how do you, you know, instead I stepped out of the ambulance and instead of shattering my leg, I actually shattered my mind. And so I was a little baffled as to why that wouldn't be considered a workman's comp issue. Um, but I digress. So back to the ketamine thing. So yeah, if you, it's, you know, the, the results and uh, effects are different on every person. But what we would do is we do an intake. And then um, when I first started, we were doing like a continuous infusion. It's a weight-based infusion. And it was a series of six treatments. So you can do two in a week, once a week for six weeks, you know, however would work the best for you. And then what the doctor also felt like would be a good combination. And the infusions I really liked because, um, you know, like every, any infusion, if it starts to get a little too much, which um, we know ketamine can be too much for some people, we can stop the infusion right away. Some places I know do like IM injections of it and then just kind of let you go down that journey. That's um, interesting. So, <laughs> yeah. So it was a one-on-one. So basically I would actually sit with the patient, like in the room with them. Um, you know, we have cardiac monitor on them. I would actually physically watch them just to make sure for that hour they were okay. And if they became agitated, we would either cut back on the ketamine or, you know, give them a little bit of Ativan just to calm them down. Um, never really had um, maybe one person the whole time I did it actually ever needed like a little bit of Ativan Versed to calm down. Typically when people got a little agitated or amped up, I was able just to kind of talk to them and bring talk them through the experience and kind of bring them back down to set recenter them back sure. to where they were. So yeah, you sit in a room, of course, really comfortable chair. Um, you have the option of listening to music that you want. Um, there was a big screen TV where you can pick, you know, do you want to watch waves or do you want to look at mountains or see clouds or snow falling? Like just something really calming because um, just to help people kind of process stuff. Um, and yeah, it was just, it was just a really good experience, like watching people go through it. And same thing with me. I, I don't even know how to describe it. It was, I, I, I sat in a chair. I, I had the really nice classical music going, but I was just like kind of in another world, just kind of processing things. And then at the end of the session, it was just a real easy comeback to earth that kind of sounds tacky I guess but uh, not at all and I, I I don't even know how it works really I just I just know the nightmare stopped um yeah and I was able to sleep it kind of gave you a different outlook right on life yeah it's just just a different method of processing things so that's really cool it's a, it's a neat experience and very unique um I know that not a lot of people are offering it more regularly until they have had more studies done but they have started using it here in Albuquerque for firefighters or anybody with PTSD, which is good. I think any any increased treatments are better. Yeah. And I'm not too sure. Um, well, I do know now the particular doctor I work for, he actually does talk therapy along with ketamine therapy. So he does have a psychiatrist that actually works in his clinic now. So like the two modalities come together That's in great. a session. And I wouldn't. I wouldn't advocate to someone like, oh, you had an event before you do anything else, before you seek a therapist or just go straight to ketamine therapy. I, I feel that it's it's good to try the traditional methods. And then if you're resistant to those methods, then maybe there are there are other methods is what I'm trying to say. Yes. There are other treatment methods. Yeah. There are always options, right? Yeah. That What is it? The EMDR is also one. Um, I tried that. I didn't particularly have success with it, but I know a lot of people that have. So 
There are always options. So you had you had talked a little bit earlier about um, basically your your brain being broken and maybe not necessarily physically being broken, but when you talked to your work about that, how was it recepted? Sometimes I'm angry with them for not handling my situation better, and then sometimes I understand because they've never had a paramedic in this situation. Um, so they they flat out. I remember one of the supervisors told me that they had discussed me numerous times but they just did not know what to do with me or how to proceed forward so yeah I just I wish I wish I had had that critical stress debriefing early at all and um, the other thing was one of the things we were allowed to have our bereavement you know I, I got the traditional three days off of bereavement um, and then I was expected to go back to work and some days I made it through my shift. Some days I would, something would trigger me. Someone that looked like my dad, someone that sounded like my dad. And I, um, I would honestly lose my mind and scream at them and cuss at them and tell them that they should die and my dad should be alive. And, you know, and you can't do that as a, as a paramedic or, or as anyone really, you know. So I'd get called in the office and then sent home for the day. Um, which in itself was a problem because like you were talking about earlier you know when you're sitting at home just staring at the walls all you do is ruminate and that's all I did it's like I just thought to myself did I did I put the ambulance and drive fast enough did I drive fast enough did me stomping around the parking lot and not starting CPR 30 seconds sooner is, is that is that what caused my dad to die for years, I did this rumination of, did did this step cause this? Did I let my dad die? Did I, you know, was I the cause of everything? When realistically, he was dead before I ever got there. And had it been another crew, the outcome would have been the same, except I would blame them instead of me. Right. And it was. it's probably best that it worked out this way, that it was me. So I did not blame others for an in inevitable thing. And it sounds like the way that you talk about it now that you are able to separate and better recognize the way that things would have been in any situation, right? The way you talk about it, it sounds it sounds very healthy the way you're talking about it and that's good. Well, let's use that 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 phrase in uh, emotional mental health, mindfulness, right? Yes. Where logic logic and emotion live in the happy medium and yeah most of the time I'm okay there a lot of times um, I'd say for the first few years after my dad's death I lived in the emotional state where I was just angry at everyone and acted out and angry at myself and not only was I doing dangerous not dangerous inappropriate things at work like not treating patients the way they should be I was you know probably exhibiting doing some dangerous behaviors um drinking more not drugs but drinking more um just you know like not caring about my own life just being unhealthy maybe driving faster being you know like yeah. just those kind of dangerous behaviors no and i think a lot of us go through similar patterns um maybe 
not with having that exact example that you've had. Yours is a fairly extreme example, but I think a lot of us deal with our PTSD in different ways or our emotional responses in different ways. And I, you know, that is kind of something I've seen a lot of is, yeah, maybe I was driving faster because I, you know, I kind of didn't care about what happened or I was drinking more because I didn't care. You know, if I woke up and went to my shift the next day, you know, it didn't matter, but it does matter. And I'm glad to see that you've progressed as far as you have and that you're able to have this conversation with us today. You know, it's a very important conversation. Well, yeah, like I said, I am, I'm very open. I do want to tell, tell people I had a polypharm overdose and it was a good one. I ended up intubated and unconscious for four days. And I mean, so they tell me, right. right. Cause I, I don't remember. Any there, of it. Right. Um, right. And um, in the end, I, once I was discharged from the hospital, I was discharged straight to a psychiatric facility where I was forced to stay there for a little bit. And uh, I want people to know that, well, I'd like to catch them before they get to that point. Exactly. Um, but if they get to that point, it's it's not the end. It's not the end. It doesn't have to be the end. Like, you know, like, I'm, I'm back. I'm okay. And I think most everyone else could come back and be okay. Right. I agree with that 100%. So what what do you think finally drove you to get better? That's a really good question. Um, I think probably tired of putting myself and my family through that. I had uh, children in high school when this was all going on. I'm sure it was very difficult and traumatic for them to see me, um, you know, in a hospital, not knowing how, if I was going to live. And then um, knowing that I was... Um, sent to a psychiatric ward for a little bit. Yeah, I just couldn't keep going, doing that to them and myself. It was very taxing, you know, on me as well. Yeah, no, that's hard. And I, um, you and I had talked a little bit about this before too, but my, when I was in high school, my mother had also had a suicide attempt and uh, that was big, you know, that's big and that's hard. It's hard to, to, um, speaking from a child side, it's hard to forgive her for that, you know, but my mother and I talk very often and we have a, a much closer relationship now than we did when I was younger. So it's good. And I hope that um, you and your family have been able to progress to become closer as well. Yeah, things are, things are right now for me, I think the best that they've ever been. You know, I've got a good relationship with with my children they're adults now like I said I'm in a phenomenal job still in medicine which I love and I have a spouse that's very supportive also as a first responder so yeah it's just uh life is really good now do you think that and I'm gonna go off a topic a little bit because you said your spouse is a first responder uh do you find that it's hard to be married to another first responder well I have this (laughs) I have a joke Um, Oh, goodness. (laughs) Yeah. So I've been married a a few times and they've all been, they've all been first responders. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah. So um, (laughs) I, I tease people. My, my first husband was a paramedic and he's the one that introduced me to the field. Um, So thanks to him, that's how I developed my passion. My second husband, um, when I was going through the suck was, he's a firefighter, um, didn't really help me too much. Um. And to expand on that, I, I remember one day in therapy, the psychiatrist, psychologist had asked me, why did I get married? So that was another 
dangerous behavior that I had done post to the incident, why I got married so quickly. Okay. okay? I, and I said, well, I, I thought I needed him as a light, like a life raft. Like I felt I was drowning and to me, he looked like a life raft. And the psychiatrist asked me, did it ever occur to you that you would get better on your own? And up until that moment that he asked me that question, in all honesty, it never occurred to me that I could do it all on my own. And um, that was uh, and that was an Oprah aha moment for me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So the second marriage was not exactly the best um, because I expected him to make me better post my incident and it didn't happen. So it just failed miserably. And then... Um, I had a paramedic, I had a firefighter. I was like, heck, for my third marriage, let's just go for a trifecta of four decisions. Like, let's either go law, <laughs> law enforcement, soldier, let's just stick with the family, right? And sure. so I'm, I married a law enforcement officer and he's been my rock. Well, good. Really stable guy. That's good. I had a hard time even thinking about dating other uh, healthcare providers because the schedule is so hard, you know? And so my wife, and we've been together for almost 20 years now, she has nothing to do with EMS. And I think that makes it a little easier for me because she doesn't have to deal with the stuff that we have to see, you know? So I think it takes a special person to be involved with someone in our field. Mm -hmm. Because every once in a while, like, you know, you come home from work, you're like, hey, honey, how was your day? My day was horrible. I made a poor investment i lost a hundred thousand dollars like you're an investor for a company sure you turn around and be like oh i'm really sorry to hear that my day was horrible someone's head got run over by a semi and i had to scrape brains off this pavement you know like i think a lot of people can't they don't like to share that um no but yeah so that's my joke um but i'm very grateful for the position i'm in now yeah, no, it sounds like you're in a much healthier position in a healthier relationship and in a healthier, hopefully, workplace as well. I've learned a lot um, on how to ask for help. Um, so I know that with any jobs or any agencies that I work for post incident, I would not get in that same situation. Um, yeah, and I'm obviously a big advocate for mental health, asking for help, peer support, whatever needs to be done. Is there any advice that you would give to somebody who maybe wanted to talk to their to their management team about needing help for mental health? I think most places nowadays, it seems like they have some kind of peer support team and I, I would advocate um, to start there. And if if not a peer support group and they have the ability to reach out to their insurance agency because or their EAP, a lot of places have a uh, employee assistance program, um, start there as well. The one thing I do caution about EAPs and this is just my thought personally, mm -hmm. um, it takes a special kind of therapist to understand our work. And I'm not sure that everyone that an EAP has access to might be the right provider. I'm not saying don't try, but I'm saying if you feel that you haven't met your, a good fit for yourself, don't give up. Like just maybe it's like dating. Right. You know, go meet someone, go meet someone else test test driving for go have a couple sessions and see if they're a good match if not yes. keep going yes you don't have to settle right 
And you have to, you have to know, and this is kind of something I've pushed a few times is like, you have to know if something is working for yourself or not, because you have to be your own advocate. A hundred percent. You want to make sure that you have somebody that you can connect with and somebody that you feel understands what you're saying or is capable of understanding what you're saying. Absolutely. And I've been thinking a lot about that question you asked me earlier, what made me decide to get better Mm -hmm. or what, what was the tipping point? not made me, but what was the tipping point that kind of led me on the path? And you know that that um, the project out there, the semicolon project. Yes. The my story isn't my story isn't finished. Now that I'm think I've been thinking about it, I did not feel my medical career was done. Like I wasn't finished providing care yet, and so I I wanted to continue on as as a paramedic. Yeah, and I had to I had I imagine that was probably hard, right? But it feels like you had that calling still. You wanted to help maybe help people and you kind of started off, right, by helping people in the ketamine clinic. Yeah. Um yeah, you know, and after after I left Denver, I took some time off to kind of recenter myself and just kind of do some things that I thought would help me. Um but I remember going back onto an ambulance after that. I was I was worried, like, would this trigger me all over again? Could I do it? I remember the few times that I I brought patients back to the same hospital where my dad died. It it's also been a concern walking through those doors. Am I going to get triggered again and just kind of spiral out of control? And uh, yeah, I I've been able to work through it. And it's been okay. That's awesome. It sounds like you got the tools that you needed to kind of help push through that. Not necessarily in the time frame I would have liked, but absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yes. And everybody's everybody's story is different. And we're, again, we're at a position where we can talk to you and you can talk very openly and freely about it, which is great because there are providers that still struggle today, you know, and it may not be because of a loved one passing away, but something horrible that they saw or they've just gotten a little too far into drinking and they don't know how to turn it around to make it better for themselves or they think they have it under control you know right you know um my critical incident is not going to be the same as someone else's i understand that um what worked for me might not work for someone else but i i I guess that my biggest message is people either you're not alone i'm always here to listen other people are here to listen like just don't think you have to do this alone. And yeah. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So do you have any heartwarming stories from working in the field for as long as you've been in the field? Anything that just makes you proud, proud of what you do and who you are? Uh-huh. Yeah, I told you about this story where uh, it was actually, so after I, I left Denver and I was a flight medic for a little bit, I decided to come back to Colorado and I, I went back onto an ambulance, which was the concern is whether or not I could be on an ambulance again. My very first, it was within my very first month of working on this, at this particular agency, I ran on a, a gentleman who was just passing through Colorado on vacation, just driving through. And he had, he had a widow maker, the mother of all heart attacks, you know, mm-hmm. the classic, the one that you see in a textbook, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and just right away. I, I mean, from the moment I made contact with them and get him flown to Denver, you know, and as a result, then he had a quadruple bypass and. You know, he was very grateful. He and his family were very grateful. They invited me out for an award ceremony. He was he was a police officer, police chief of a department out in uh, another state. Oh, wow. You know, and he was very grateful that he was given in what he thought was a second chance of life, you know, and he was able to 
continue on with his wife and see his grandkids get born. And uh, so, uh, yeah, his his family, they were still in touch. Um, they're very, very grateful. And I'm very grateful to have um, an opportunity to be part of such a positive outcome. Right. Which is kind of what we all strive for in this career is to be part of more positive outcomes. And we might not necessarily get them all, but it's really cool when we do get to because what are the chances that you got that guy at that time, right? What if it had been some crusty old paramedic who's like, eh, you know, just right. make sure you follow up with your doctor. You know what I right. mean? Like, right. it's it's good that you were able to to make that change. Yeah, and um, I actually, I've been listening to a few different podcasts. Um, I'd heard an interesting thing in a different medical podcast about you know, as paramedics and EMTs or first responders, we're always high-fiving each other when it, we save a life. Mm-hmm. And um, our job is not to save the life. Our job is to save the lifestyle. And I th- I've been thinking a lot about that ever since I heard that. And um, kind of like it goes back to my dad. I saved his life, but his lifestyle was not intact. He was never going to be neurologically intact. He would never leave the hospital. I already knew that. Um, right. So I think when we are getting these patients, I, I've revamped my thinking to not only are we saving their life, but I want to make sure that they are actually making it out of the hospital and having a good life after that. Right. We want to make sure that they're, they're coming out of this, at least mentally intact. You know, sometimes yeah. people may lose extremities and that can be hard, but it's doable. Right. Yeah. No, that's a great, uh, that's a great way of putting it a great perspective and i guess we're saving our own lifestyle right that's what we're talking about saving our own lives and lifestyle (laughs) exactly do you have any other resources that you want to shout out on here Uh, you talked about that podcast do you know the name of the podcast i believe it's heavy lies the helmet heavy lies the helmet i've never heard of that one so i'll be looking it up yeah i'm pretty sure that's the one that um I heard that phrase on. All right. I'll put a link to it. Um, are there any other resources that you would suggest for people to reach out to or to utilize? For mental health, in all honesty, there are a lot of free foundations, I guess, out there. Finances should not be a concern because I'm Agreed. discovering that there are a lot of ways to get free mental health counseling for first responders. They just have to do a little bit of research. Um, one of the ones I know for sure is um, Code Green campaign. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that one, and I'm not too sure where they're based out of. They do free counseling. Um, There's another one, Foundation 1023. They also offer free mental health counseling for first responders. I particularly like them. I've utilized them myself. I like them because all their therapists are actually former first responders. So they actually truly know like what we're talking about. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of, it's growing. I think the availability for mental health health is growing. Yes, I have a we have a couple on the website and I'll be sure to add those that you've suggested to. We have Hero to Hero, which is local here in Albuquerque and in the Rio Rancho area. And then we also have um, Skulls for Hope, uh, which was um, one of my interviewees, actually one of his uh, programs. So that's it's really cool. And I want to just keep adding more. So if you have other suggestions, just keep sending them to me. I'll put them on my website. And it's cool because I get to see on the website what um, links people are clicking. And there's actually been a really good response to the links that I've put up for those programs. So people are actually going in and clicking those links to hopefully utilize them for help. So 
Do you have any others, any stories that you want to share before we close up? Um, wow. Well, I would think I'd have some really good, really good <laughs> stories, but they always seem to just blend together. I That sounds so callous um, no, anymore. It's, it's, but... It happens. A lot of, a lot of people, I think it's just easier to, to not think about the details, you know? I, I do. I think that's true like it seems like the moment a call is over for me it's like tucked away in a box in like on a shelf in my brain and it's just done and then I move on to the next one right yeah exactly like it, when I started it was like I'm gonna remember every patient every time and now I'm like I don't even remember what I flew yesterday you know I just <laughs> I checked out when I got done with work and I don't want to think about it until I go back to work on Saturday I think that's a big um a big component of our mental health happiness is that work-life balance and just learning to, yeah, stop. Is there anything that you do in your free time that helps you kind of step away from the work life? You know, it's, it's weird. I used to love exercising. I exercise all the time and I distinctly remember the day my dad died was probably one of the last times I like exercised to that point that I used to. And it's taken me this long to get back into it. Um, you know, just, I, I just stopped really doing anything that really brought me joy. Yeah. And I, I kind of wondered if I psychoanalyzed myself, if I was punishing myself in some way, but through over the years, I've really gotten back into the stuff that I've really enjoyed and exercise is one of them. I'm just even just walking the dogs, you know, camping, anything outdoors, just, yeah, that's been a great great relief for me that's awesome and then having the availability to talk to your spouse when you need right and then having that outdoor activity do you still live in the denver area or are you yeah i do um interestingly enough this this house here is the house i grew up in um so wow yeah so my mom and i bought it for my mom because my dad had already passed away but yeah this is the house i grew up in and was it easy moving into that house it was a little challenging um i've done some I've done some remodeling um so it's kind of been uh changing that vibe I think and you know for a while I couldn't even drive down that street with the business that my dad like I would make kind of a if I had to go in that direction I would kind of not drive by it sure and so yeah there's a lot of changes that's good that you I mean that I think that kind of is a testament to to see how far you've come because you're able to move into the house that you guys grew up in. And hopefully it's filled with fond memories and new memories, right? With your, your new family. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, I want to bring up real, I know we're probably running short on time and I know this is a catchphrase, the resiliency word, um, because it's different for every person. But one thing I did learn is, um, like one of my takeaways throughout the year is the coping mechanisms that we had that we developed as children don't grow with us. So when we get hit by um, an event such as mine or if someone gets divorced or lose a job, that coping mechanism that you have that you use as a child may not serve you for this particular time. And that's okay. You just have to recognize it and develop a new coping mechanism. And that's where therapy comes in or, you know, talking to someone, a friend or something, and develop a new coping me- mechanism. 
And who knows, maybe that coping mechanism that you developed won't be the right one for the next event. And you'll have to develop a new one, you know, like, so it's a process. I think that a good phrase that goes with that is emotional intelligence, right? Oh. Being able to recognize that maybe what you're doing isn't working and feeling it in yourself and being able to step out of your comfort zone and do the things that you need to make yourself better. Uh, emotional intelligence is something that I've, I've kind of learned about in the last couple of years. And it's something that it's making it easier for me to get through day to day, you know? That's a good phrase. I'm <laughs> Yes, please do. Please do. <laughs> anything else you want to bring up before we close out? Um, no, do you have anything else for me? No, I think I just I thank you so much for coming on and doing this again. And I'm so sorry that we had recording issues on the first time. <laughs> um, I'm glad that you that you set the time for us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me back. And once again, I know I said it 10 times already. But I just really want people to, I want to encourage people to know that they're not alone. And yeah, you know, they can find support in, maybe in the weirdest places, but it's it's there. Um, right. Yeah. And I think you've done a really, really good job of expressing that and uh, keep sharing. <laughs> yeah. You know, every, every once in a while, I'll, I'll see an article somewhere in the U.S. about a first responder taking their own life. And it's the same with veterans or you know, and it just breaks my heart. It really does. Yeah. And we don't know how or what is going to affect people in the way that it's going to affect them either. But it's just, it's important to know that you're not alone in the way that you're feeling. And there are always options. Absolutely. Again, that cuts back to that emotional intelligence, you know, recognizing within yourself how you're feeling and why you're feeling the way that you're feeling and being able to figure it out or find the help to help you figure it out. So Sam, I never actually asked you what what prompted you to start this podcast. You know, I I've been out of the nine one one system for a while. Uh huh. But one of the the big things that I miss about being in the nine one one system was the camaraderie. And the thing that makes me feel most cathartic is talking my stories over with other providers. And that kind of helps me feel better about maybe the treatment that I provided or the things that I've done. And I think it helps other providers feel better about the things that they've done in certain situations or, you know, I think sharing our stories is how we make ourselves better providers. You know, oh, you had that happen? Now I know what to look for when I'm in a similar situation. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's that's what's prompted. And if you get the chance to listen, you know, the last few episodes have been very story oriented and they're not all sad. You know, it's good. It's good to see people sitting down, hanging out, just telling stories, not one upping, not being crazy or anything like that, just hanging out. It, yeah, that is, that's good. It's good to be with a group of, of like minded people. Right. And not even necessarily like minded, but just we all put ourselves in these situations, right? And we all come from different walks of life and we may all have similar things. Like a lot of us are probably ADHD and that's why we like this job or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, some of us want to do it because we got excited when we saw the lights and sirens and some of us really just enjoy the medicine aspect. Yeah, I, re I remember um, the first time I went on a third ride with my, with my husband back then, I had never even seeing Denver like this I never even knew that this existed and it just blew me away like 
the, the care that we're able to do, that the paramedics are able to do, and the situations that they go into, like, I was just, I was sold. It was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> my, um, my father was, and has always been a cop for as long as I could remember, and he didn't push me to get into this job or even suggest it. Um, I initially had wanted to become a cop, and then... The opportunity came where a volunteer fire department that I lived next to happened to open up and he had worked closely with some of the guys. So I was like, well, I'll go try it and check it out. And I loved the medicine. Absolutely loved the medicine. And that's kind of where I've gotten to as far as I have. Yeah, I think that the human body is an amazing machine and the medicine we do provide is just, yeah, it's always a puzzle. It is. It is always a puzzle. That's like the best part. Seeing all of the different numbers on the labs and the history and everything involved and getting to, to put all those together and figure it out and hopefully, you know, give your patient a better outcome is thrilling. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's hard on uh, the rotor side. I, I'll never fly in a rotor, but I don't know how those guys do it. Props to them. <laughs> You're in that tiny little space. And trying to figure all that out versus a fixed wing, oof, that's hard. <laughs> There's pluses and minuses to both. Right? Yes, so. yes, I'm sure there are. <laughs> well, awesome, Chio. Thank you so much for joining us again. I appreciate you. Thank I you. did want to say um, one more thing. Thank you for your help on the financial side. You were the first person to to provide us <laughs> income on that side, and that was a really cool way to show your support for our our podcast. Thank you so much for doing that. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yes, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. You know, if you ever need anything, you have my phone number, you can reach out anytime. All right. Well, same, same. And I look forward to hearing your podcast and uh, seeing how how it grows. Thank you so much, Chio. I hope you have a good day. Thank you. You guys have a good one. Bye, Chio. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening. Before we wrap up, we have a few important announcements to share with you. Firstly, we're excited to announce the launch of our brand new 911 Nonsense Facebook group page. It's a community where everyone can go to connect, share ideas, discuss topics from the show, and get all of the most recent updates about the podcast. We'd love to have you join us and be part of the conversation. Next, we want to ask you to rate and review our podcast on your preferred platform. Your feedback means the world to us and helps us reach a wider audience. By rating and reviewing the show, you'll be supporting us in a big way and helping others discover 911 Nonsense. If you enjoy what we do and would like to support the podcast even further, we have a few options available. You can visit samspursuit.com to find the links to our 911 Nonsense merch page and our recently released Noon Gear page. Every contribution, no matter the size, goes a long way in helping us continue to better the podcast. We know that not everyone is comfortable being on the podcast, but we still want to hear your stories and experiences. If you have a compelling story and would like to share it to be read by me in a future episode, please reach out to us via email at 911nonsense at gmail.com or through our website's contact section. If you choose to be anonymous, we'll make sure to respect your privacy while sharing your story in a way that resonates with our audience. Thank you again for tuning in. We truly appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more engaging content in the future. See you next week. <laughs>